Jesse teaches Lauren about feminist stuff. And words. <laughs> this is our new pilot. <laughs> Elevator pitch next. <laughs> Ready graphics? Ready theme? Hi, I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. Is Elvis? Elvis? Is questionably Elvis? Is it Elvis? Oh, you know, we're just going to do our cooking segment. Just have sex, Jen. Just have sex, Jen. So the thing with the egg, it's a love letter to women. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about the season one finale, episode 22, The Morning Show. Hey, everyone. This is Jesse. And this is Lauren. And we are here for the finale of season one. Can you believe we're here? We can't believe we're here. No. <laughs> we're very excited to be here. Yes. This week's episode is directed by someone you know, someone we've mentioned. Kelman, comma, Barnett. This episode is written by our first true freelance writer, someone who doesn't become a regular staffer later. Uh, and this was written by Catherine Baker. Um, now, we don't have a bio for Catherine because she did not become a, a regular writer, um, though she does return for later episodes. Um, but I just wanted to give a quick little call out to one of my favorite cult fandoms, which is I'm a massive Bruce Campbell fan. I have met him three times, and each time I have, uh, as I put it, squealed like a 13-year-old girl at an Aaron Carter concert. I went for both of his book releases, his autobiography, as well as his fiction, and then I got to meet him when I got to interview Ash vs. Evil Dead Season 2 at Comic-Con, where I also met Lucy Lawless. Talk If you want to see me cry, just ask me about that in person. It was the best moment of my life. However, he briefly was on a TV series called The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr., of which Catherine Baker wrote a single episode. Oh, you know who's also in that show? The actor who played Mitchell Baldwin mm-hmm. later on. Uh-huh. Look at that, a little 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 connection. Let's call it Six Degrees of Jesse's Fandoms, mm-hmm. all converging on Murphy Brown. Anyway, Catherine Baker is a freelance writer who wrote this wonderful season ender. I think it's really cool that a non-staff writer got to write the season finale. Yeah, we asked Corby why that might have been the case, and her answer was, everyone was really tired. <laughs> That's the most humanizing response. I know, I love it. It makes, it just, writers, people, they're just like us. But as you pointed out last week, this was not filmed last. Mm -hmm. So this episode was actually filmed after the summer of 77, which is interesting because of the Elvis reference. So it was obviously on Mm -hmm. their minds. But also, also asked Corby why perhaps they moved things out of order. She honestly didn't remember. But well, we've talked about that when we first started this series, we didn't understand why summer of 77 was not the finale. Mm-hmm. But now I think I get, and both of us, I guess, will talk to each other and everybody why we think that. Yes. You're shaking your head. I think you do, mm-hmm. too. I think I know why they switched the order. I, yes, I have I have some thoughts about that and also my own personal why it works for me. Yeah, it actually works better for me now. Yes. And um, we, we will talk about how I was... I was very surprised by this episode. I didn't remember much about this episode, and I found myself very surprised with my reception of it. Same here. And this episode aired May 22nd, 1989, but was filmed April 7th, 1989. And the opening song is dedicated to the one I love by a group you've heard us speak of before, the Shirelles. It was in 1961. Now, the last time we heard Shirelles, we talked about Carole King. Uh, Lauren shared her her history and thoughts on on the wonderful Carole King, the writer of said song. Uh, but now we're actually going to talk about the Shirelles themselves. Mm-hmm. So first and foremost, this version of the song is actually a cover. Which I was shocked. Yeah, I had no idea. I genuinely, until I just saw this, thought this was the original. Um, it was written by Loman Pauling and Ralph Bass, which was a hit for the Five Royales in 1957, long before the Shirelles. 
and then later for the Mamas and the Papas. Um, the Shirelles re-released this song in 1961, and it charted at only number 81 on the Billboard Hot 100, which actually surprises me because I know it so well. Yeah. Well, I think the previous song, Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow, is just a bigger hit for oh, them. it is, yeah. absolutely. But the fact that this only went to 81 actually kind of surprises me. because me too. It is used so much. But that is after the fact. So the Shirelles were actually classmates at Passaic High School in New Jersey. New Jersey. Jersey. Shirley Owens, later known as Shirley Alston Reeves. Doris Coley, later Doris Kenner Jackson. Addie Mickey Harris, later Addie Harris McFadden. And Beverly Lee. Uh, they are said to have started the whole girl group genre. So many say that the Shirelles' acceptance by both white and black audiences before Motown was a huge mainstream movement is part of the early success of the civil rights movement. When we get to season three, we will continue the story of the Shirelles with Lauren sharing some information about Florence Greenberg. Yes. But we'll save that for you. So should we get into the episode? Let's do this. Let's do it. So we have the cold open in a set that we are rarely in this season, mm -hmm. Murphy's Bedroom. I still can't get over how floral it is. It's very floral. It's so floral, and it's just not... Murphy to me even though it is like looking at it I'm like yeah that's Murphy's bedroom but the the type that I see of Murphy I just don't understand the amount of floral yeah but I also realize that eventually she does get another floral comforter but it's like a green exactly so you know it's on is like pink and I think that's what I remember I think the pink background and not to be you know a, a femininity shamer that I, I think you can absolutely be a strong tomboy who also has pink things absolutely I just I think I just so equate her with the more green palette, especially of her walls and everything like that, mm -hmm. that when I see pink floral bedsheets, it throws me. I assume she, like, inherited them from someone, <laughs> you know? But we also have an above camera angle, which yeah. is really great. Mm -hmm. Murphy, not a good sleeper. Not a pro sleeper. No. Also, stuffed animal. It's hey. a cow. I, She's kind of adorable. I wouldn't have guessed that Murphy would have a stuffed animal. I do. Really? I because I still do. Oh. I love. There's something childlike and comforting about that that I think is it. I think it unlocks a certain vulnerability for yeah, her. No, it is that she doesn't see elsewhere. Because we and she does have toys in her office. That's true. There's a certain yeah childlike quality. I had just forgotten, and I yeah. I was like, oh, I actually have a funny story about cows. <laughs> Let's do this. <laughs> um, so there is a E behind the scenes, like true Hollywood story of Murphy Brown. Mm -hmm. And um, I know now that several of the interviews are on Diane's ranch. I didn't know she had a ranch. Because mm -hmm. someone recently posted this really kick-ass picture of Diane and a bunch of bulls. Yeah, it's awesome. It's pretty awesome. And so when it said in the description that it was her ranch, I went, oh, now this makes sense. Because all of the interviews with Jill Shikovsky have cows in the background. Mm -hmm. And so my friend and I would watch it, and we thought it was hilarious. Because they're very... Like commentary? No, they're just very distracting, the cows. Well, yes, cows are very distracting. Yeah, we just thought it was funny. <laughs> and to this day, sometimes she'll just go, the cows. <laughs> the cows. Uh, and, and I will crack up. So I was like, oh, Murphy has a cow. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Because the horses and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So she's moving around in sort of these hilarious little sort of sleep patterns and eventually takes the stuffed animal and um, breaks her alarm clock, which is a real alarm clock. It's real. I, first of all, I, I appreciate one of her last positions is she has the, as somebody who, once I'm sleeping, I'm fine, but I can't nap during the day because when I know there's light out, mm -hmm. I'm done. Yeah. And so I actually have a sleep mask. So I... I I appreciate um, the use of the sleep mask because I believe I. that she needs it. Mm -hmm. uh, mine has lavender in it to help me sleep. Oh, I've never Thank tried you, that. 
I appreciate that she puts the pillow over her head and then takes the sheet to delicately drape over the bottom of the pillow so absolutely no light can get in. It was such a like, oh, girl, been there kind of moment. That's clearly Candace just improving the reality of what that would feel like and not just pose, pose, pose. It's a good actor move. I don't think anyone probably directed well i don't know barmnet is a very good director and they have directed it but it feels very very human i just wrote the foley effect when she smashes the alarm clock is gold it's so good it's something broke something ceramic broke (laughs) from that stuffed cow I said it sounds like someone broke a plate of glass. Yes, it is extreme. She, There's force behind that. Yeah, no, what's great about it is that they're all comedic moments. And again, it shows like such a clown that Candace Bergen is mm-hmm. um, and how live she is with her body and using it as mm-hmm. a comic device. But it doesn't seem unreal. Yes, exactly. And fits her personality. It just, it feels like we, we have a slice of life moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But no, I, I'm not surprised that, that she needs a face mask and the pillow Mm-hmm. I, I always sort of joke. Same girl. I Same. do too, right? I actually have a couple different masks because I'll knock them off during the mm-hmm. week and then I just can't find them. I have a cooling mask and Ooh. then I have my nice normal lavender mask. And then sometimes when I can't find either one of them because I lost under my bed, I just have the um, lone socks that don't have a partner. Bette Midler calls it the works. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, I have the same thing. She talked about an interview, and I went, "Oh yeah, a face mask, the you know blackout curtains." I'm right there, my blackout curtains. They look I love fantastic. Them so much. Yeah, the works. I am a vampire. Yes. You, that's why you look so amazing. Thank you. so Great much. Great skin. Thank you so much. So we're in the bullpen. We open up. Murphy gets off the elevator. Now I I like the outfit on mm-hmm. her, but I'm going to make a joke. So I'm not making Uh-oh. fun of her outfit, Uh-oh. but. Uh, wouldn't necessarily be for me, but I wrote, she looks like she's ready for a yacht adventure. She does. It's like, it's one of those costume outfits. <laughs> it's love boat leisure wear. Yes. I don't think I could pull that off. No. But. I mean, I couldn't. No. I bet you'd look great. How dare you even suggest that I could not pull something <laughs> off. But I actually do not think I could pull that off. I think it's a Candace Bergen's beauty mm. plus that Murphy walk just kind of sells that it's not kitsch. Yeah, because this person would never wear kitsch. No, <laughs> so it somehow works in a way that I would look like I was dressing up in a boop boop, bidoop, love boat outfit. It also looks like uh, season one. Like I don't think she wears anything similar afterwards, exactly. but exactly. it works for me. Some yeah. things that I look at and I go, oh, not Murphy, but this works. It's just yeah, not. What we I see know later. it, but then I forget it. Yeah, exactly. She has an announcement to make. This is her two hundredth day without cigarettes. Uh, and she goes around the room. She's so obnoxious. She's extremely obnoxious to Fran, to Marv, you know. I, wrote, I was like, oh, finally, I can confirm that's Marv. Yes. I'm always like, which one? The African-American guy who we see a lot. I never wanted to misname him. Mm-hmm. I was like, it's Marv. I have Marv. it in all caps. And uh, she says it'll be cake later, which feels very like classic Murphy. I was it like, is. oh, that sounds like this could be out of context, like season four or five or mm-hmm. something. Um, so she runs into Jim at the coffee island. And uh, it seems that every day lately, Murphy is coming in and making this announcement. And Jim is done. I Kudos for the specificity of this line, of Jim line. Would you like to tell us what Jim says? Okay, so I have basically the entire transcript of this interaction. I figured you so would. so much Jim. It's great. But what I love is it's... It's his intensity as it goes. And all of his lines on this episode have just brilliant theatrical acting training behind them because they start one way and it grows. And it just so he starts with this kind of sneer (laughs) as he says, I know, Murphy, everyone knows 200 days. Yesterday, you told us one 199 days. 
places his stir in his coffee. Goes, Why, it seems like only a week ago it was 193 days. What I'm trying to say, Murphy, is that as much as we love you, and we do love you, and his stirring starts getting faster, you're, we're wondering whether this is going to go on forever. Smack, 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 throws it. <laughs> I wrote that Jim is using the stir to let out his sexual tension. He is. Because then... Murphy asks him when the last time he had sex. <laughs> oh, God. It shows. Doris and I were having a little problem in our marriage. We don't seem to be able to. And at this moment, he's posed himself behind the water cooler, and he drums his fingers on it. He goes, get in step. And then he does a little thing with his fingers where he does a little finger dance with each other lately. It's so great. I love it because... I love it because Jim is a modern man who cares about a healthy sex life as a mature man. And by that finger acting, I can tell that he cares about Doris's as well. Oh, God. Look at those fingers. They're just, they are dexterous and they have a lot of energy. Little like, drink. Doris is always smiling. Doris is always <laughs> smiling with a, just a little pep in that step. I love the fact that they could have played Jim one-noted, even, yes. and they haven't, you know? Mm-hmm. And neither has Charles Kimbrough. Mm. But to be that he was repressed sexually, yeah. that he wouldn't want to mm. talk about these things. I yeah, mean, so yet, it doesn't matter to him, yeah, because but, he gets what he needs. But yes, he goes off to, but he goes off to the side. Yes, of course, he's a mm-hmm. private person, mm-hmm. and, and I'm sure he believes that Doris's life is also private, and he's talking about someone he cares about. Mm-hmm. But he trusts Murphy to talk about that. Yeah. Also, this is something that people who work with him know. Yes! Because <laughs> she says it at the She knows. Yeah. And it's the same way he acts when he's really tired. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that, aside from just the, the cliche of the character that it could have been, mm-hmm. and the stereotype and the, the archetype of it, the relationship we've seen of Murphy and him is a slugger relationship. It's a, you know, a more patriarchal position. Yes. And yet there is an equality there that she feels comfortable. And also it's, it's Murphy Brown, but also the fact that they have a relationship where he can be like, Hey slugger, Hey kiddo kind of energy toward her. But she can also ask when's the last time you had sex. Yeah. And the fact that he doesn't do some machismo kind of answer where he brushes it off and says, he's fine. Like he genuinely shows a vulnerability when he shares that, you know, after 25 years, they start to take each other for granted. And, and, you know, since the show is preempted this week, maybe it's a good time to plan something nice. And he makes such an excited, sweet face. Like he genuinely cares about his relationship and his Mm -hmm. wife and his, and their happiness, their mutual physical and emotional happiness. And it's, it's such a great example of that. You can be a man's man and have vulnerability and care. I agree. And I just love him so much. You guys. (laughs) Doris is so lucky to have him. Doris is so lucky. Yeah, he is very lucky to have Doris. I was going to say, that's probably what he would say. Exactly, because he's a good man. He's a good man. A little sidebar here. I've been thinking lately about the fact that since um, Janet Carroll mm-hmm. is no longer with us, and yes, the second actress who played Doris is still living, mm-hmm. but it's just not Doris to me. No. I wondered if that would be something that would be uh, touched on in the revival, or maybe that's too close to reality at the moment. But... Thinking of Jim having to live his life without Doris... Breaks my heart. ...is interesting in a character point of view. I really wonder... You know, we already talk about how I wonder what Charlie Kimbrough's guest spot will be, what mm-hmm. it'll be about, where he will be in life. I do wonder if Doris will be... Consider, I, I, I know Doris will be considered in that. I do wonder what the treatment will be mm-hmm. um, with that in mind. I do... I think one of the most heartbreaking things for me to imagine for Jim is that he no longer has Doris. But I think also it would be a challenge for him. Mm-hmm. Something taking him out of his comfort zone. But I wonder with a guest star that's kind of a nod and a bit of fan service. Yeah. If that's 
if that's kind to our audience, because we won't have the time to explore. Unless the episode is about him finding his way through it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the only way that I would I would be okay. Yeah. But we'll see, because I also trust yeah. them to handle something like that. I do, too. So I'm, I'm very excited to see what they're going to do. I And I kudos to this show for creating a character like this that we see every episode and yet also having this secondary character that I can't imagine him without even though she isn't present yeah and that's a testament to Janet as well mm-hmm. yeah so Frank arrives and uh, he's excited to goof off for the week since they're preempted Frank asks if Murphy or Jim has seen the promo for the miniseries that's preempting them Jim, power and passion Jim is offended he's very offended this thing. tell us how Jim is offended you mean power and passion? It's nothing but an exploitative, pandering piece of trash that follows the airwaves, evening, eating away at our intelligence until the cerebral level of this country is about the size of a gnat's butt. Now, we've mentioned in the past that they have been preempted for the Lonesome Dove miniseries in February of 89. Mm-hmm. Now, that that got a... I have not seen Lonesome Dove, but it was considered quite wonderful. So I don't mm-hmm. know if that is what they're necessarily referencing. It doesn't have to be that. It can just be the fact that miniseries were really big back then. Yeah. Absolutely. Huge. And maybe, you know, it's just not Jim's taste. Or maybe Jim would actually like it if he could just get some. I think that's really actually the answer. You know? Yeah. <laughs> maybe get some while watching Lonesome Dove. Exactly. That could be someone's <gasps> thing. No one's lonesome, no mo. I feel like Doris might like that. Doris would. Oh, that's like Doris's, like, <laughs> anniversary present. Yeah. Some yeah. cosplay. So just to kind of go back to my Murphy Brown release sheet, if people are not keeping up with us, which was mailed to me as a child when I asked CBS for the titles of the episodes. They're good people. They are good people. I think they didn't know what to do with me. (laughs) Listen, they could have just not answered my letter. Challenge them. So where we left off, the first rerun was Devil with a Blue Dress on in March. And then they were preempted in April for the NCAA Basketball Championships. So I also noticed that Frank has a mug with his name on it. He does. And Jim's mug is back, which was the big indicator that we talked about last time, that this was filmed out of order. Asterisk, Jim's real mug is back. Yes. The one without the yellow stripe Mm -hmm. that was destroyed in the previous episode. Which makes me think that they really broke it. Yeah. Yeah. Headcanon-wise, it blows it open. Does Jim have a rotating set of Jim mugs? That all just look the same, except for the one with the yellow stripe. Is the yellow stripe a special gym mug? Unlike the other 42 that maybe he has. I mean, maybe it's just every mug he gets, he puts his name on it. And so it's Jim's mug. Exactly. Is this a thing? Or are we just too eagle-eyed to follow what they were trying to trick us to believe? Unfortunately, because of the order, it now looks like that he, he didn't like... Frank's mug, and then later on decided to use it. But I didn't know. I don't think Frank ever has a we mug with his name on. Answers, ever people. What's with the mug? What's with the mug? And Murphy doesn't really get her own mug until she gets her mommy mug. I feel yeah. like I never really saw her with a regular mug. Frank has one of my favorite lines yeah. after Jim storms away. Yeah, after Saucy Jim storms away, <laughs> Frank goes, "That's a guy who hasn't sunk a putt lately." <laughs> It's really good. Joe has a really great way of putting this sort of like sexual lilt over a lot of lines. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the right amount that it's not, it's exactly the joke it was meant to be. It's not gross. It's just a, nope. Yeah, that's accurate. Didn't get it as a kid. <laughs> so uh, Murphy comes to her desk and she says, I'm Murphy Brown. Welcome to my desk, which I feel is a little bit different. I feel like she usually says, I am Murphy Brown. You must be my new secretary. Exactly. But I'm sure they mix it up a bit. Mm-hmm. And as mentioned previously... <laughs> probably a residual in the writer's minds from summer of 77 mm-hmm. her secretary 
is not Elvis? Is Elvis? Elvis? Is questionably Elvis? Is it Elvis? I, I'm calling him not Elvis for the rest I'm, of the time. I'm calling him not Elvis. I wrote that he is just a fat suit on skinny legs. Because <laughs> <laughs> his upper body is padded so much to look like late in life yeah. fatter Elvis. But the man is so clearly not. Oh, and his jowls are it's just, it's, it's Elvis from like the hips up. If I didn't know any better and if he didn't interact with other people, I would say he was some sort of figment of Murphy's imagination. I want that so badly to be real that at the end of the season, she's just cracked just enough that that's what we're left with. But he does interact with Corky later. Yeah, and Miles. And then yes. the whole group has that great like, nah. So we're all laughing because it's Elvis and he gives... He says so many names, I'm so confused. He says Edward Pressman first. Mm -hmm. Is that it? Okay. He's also intentionally kind of mumbling, eating them as he's saying them. Yeah, yeah. And so she can't figure it out yet. She's kind of, has anyone ever told you that you remind them of someone? Which, because we just watched Summer of 77, and we know how much Elvis meant to her and Frank. I know. It's, I know the joke I get the joke. I get the joke intellectually. But I have so much trouble believing she doesn't immediately go, Elvis? Like, I have so much trouble believing. That. Well, maybe she just doesn't want to say it. Like, she knows, but maybe she doesn't want to be like... long enough. It's been since 77. It has been uh, 11, 12 years? Yeah, it's, 11 it, year. 11 it's been years. since 77 yeah. that she has considered possibly ever seeing him in the flesh. So, fine. Mm-hmm. And then he says that people say I favor Roy Orbison. It's <laughs> such a great joke. It's so good. Yeah. And then Miles comes in. He welcomes not Elvis. He introduces himself, not Elvis, as Edgar Pressman. Mm -hmm. And Murphy has to go, excuse me, I'm sorry. I, I thought you said your name was Edward. And, and he just makes excuses. Oh, it's, it's, it's Edward Edgar. Uh, I got to go make some photocopies. And he says his full name is Edgar Edmund Preston. Oh. He's like, yeah, Ed Edgar Edmund Preston. So that's the thing. He says it different so many times, I can't keep track. Or Pressman. Anyway. Yeah. The point is. And then uh, Murphy can't shake it. She's like, what? I just, I can't. And Miles says, you know who he reminds me of? An older Jay Leno. I wrote, what a phrase. I don't know if I remember a world when Jay Leno was not older Jay Leno. But it's showing Miles' age. Exactly. So Murphy just wants to see us. They yeah. go in the office. Miles has a proposal for Murphy. Ask if she knows the show Another Day America. She says, you mean the morning show that was taken over by the entertainment division and has come to symbolize th and threaten the demise of broadcast journalism as we know it? That Another Day America? Uh-huh. So I tried to find out, because I remember when these shows were taken over by the entertainment division and are no longer part of the news division, but I couldn't yeah. find any information. I don't remember when it happened. Me neither. Yeah. I, I had trouble researching that. I'm glad it wasn't just me then. But I remember when it happened, but I don't remember when. I wonder if it was around this time, though. But it obviously had already happened. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Also, the fishbowl made me realize that our two favorite shows have strong women with fishbowls. Exactly. And Toby Ziegler. And Toby Ziegler. There you go. Uh, so Susan Sitwell, which made me think of Sally Sitwell from The Brady Bunch, That's what right? I thought yes. of. I was like, oh, I know that name is on maternity leave, and host Bob Bates hasn't recovered from his tanning salon incident, which Miles laughs at. The poor man. I mean, as somebody who, the longest I was ever, when I was in college, mm. tanning beds were very popular. Oh, yeah. I come from the land of seasonal affected, disordered people found sun wherever they could. I learned very quickly that I am not meant to tan because the max I was able to be in there without getting a burn on the lowest setting tanning bed was three minutes. Oh, man. That's, oof, scary. So it's very easy to have a tanning bed accident. Okay. <laughs> Miles is heartless, is what I say. I think also Miles laughs when he's uncomfortable. Yes, and he does. And he knows that this conversation is going to be uncomfortable. Also, I want to remind the listeners that I, as a an old viewer trying to view this with new eyes, 
I finally see the Miles I enjoy. Oh, so yeah. now I'm enjoying Miles being an annoying monster oh, because yay. I care about him again. Yes, we do. <laughs> so they want Murphy to fill in for the week. Isn't that great? <laughs> Miles gets so overexcited when he wants something to happen. And, and it's a firm no with Murphy. No, it's not great. Great? No, it's not. Miles has to try to, you know, get Murphy to convince her. He's not quite as good as he'll become at getting her to do stuff with manipulation and, like, sort of, you know, stroking her ego yet. But he's, mm-hmm. he's almost there, you know. He says that they need someone with her kind of style and that the show would expose people to a different side of her. Mm-hmm. And she goes, read my lips. I'd rather walk barefoot through hot coals than be on the same broadcast as a weatherman who wishes happy birthday to people's pets. And then Jean shows up. Gene knows how to stroke Murphy's ego. He's an expert at this. I wrote that Miles standing in the background between the two of them, he's eyeballing Gene like he's at a master class. Oh. I love it because he's watching all the stuff that he just tried. And you, Grant's doing this great work where he's watching him and you see him kind of half smiling because he realizes what's going on. And then the smile goes away as he just starts studying intently in the background. Oh, I didn't notice it. That's great. I was like, there's my Miles who's like figuring out the ropes. And his ego takes a backseat for him to take it in. Yeah, he also, I think, gets very nervous around Gene because he knows that Gene doesn't really love him that much. Silverberg. So Gene goes, I don't know if Miles has talked to you yet. And, and Miles just interrupts and he goes, no, uh, she's playing hardball. Uh, it's Deadski. <laughs> Deadski. Miles and his little funny words. Oh, bless him. You know what? But, and Gene lays it on thick. You know, he, they need someone with, with Murphy's style and charisma. Someone who can generate the ratings that she does. You know, that stars are like her are few and far between. Stars like her and Ch- Connie Chung. What I do love is that uh, visually Murphy is acting very humble. Yeah. Until he says stars like Connie Chung. She just tenses. She, she just sprouts up. She goes, I'm a much bigger star than Connie Chung. <laughs> and the audience goes crazy. It's awesome. Yeah. And Jean says, oh, of course, of course she is. It's just that they were going to go to Connie next. And, 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 and she's really, really likes the idea because then America can see a new side of her. So, you know, begrudgingly, but a little bit nicer to Jean than she would be to Miles, you know, that she's very convinced that she's going to do it. But she makes a point of saying that she's going to do it because it would mean a lot to Miles. His smile. His sweet smile when she says that. And Jean thanks her and, and is, is kind of taken back. And, and it, but he says he's happy that this little relationship is, is working, you know, because obviously he hired Miles. And he, he asks Miles, hey, we'll have lunch sometime. So it's helping their relationship. Yeah. And when he leaves, Grant, or I say Miles, is so genuine with this line. Mm-hmm. You know, in the smile, he goes, I really haven't seen this side of Miles. I think he's putting down all of the anxiety and yeah. all of the, the energy that he brought into the room that he had to talk to her about. Mm-hmm. And he goes, why did you do that? And she goes, oh, I don't know, Miles. Sometimes Donna Reed comes in and takes over my body. Let's not question it. <laughs> it's so good. So this is one of the reasons that I think this is the finale. Because mm-hmm. if you take the two relationships that are in the pilot, yep. this is the end of the arc for that. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, Jesse, I wouldn't have seen it as much if you hadn't talked the way you did about Corky. Thank you. And brought me to, I don't want to say brought me to that side, mm-hmm. but saw Corky in a different way mm-hmm. this season than I did growing up. Thank you. Yeah, I think that the Miles and the Corky arcs are just, they're, it's such a great recap of a season if you just watch the beginning and the end. They are, as opposed to having a B-plot in episodes, they are kind of the background arc you didn't know you were watching. Yeah. And we get that payoff in this. And that I agree with you on this Miles moment. It's because he's, and it's like me saying, I 
found myself really irritated until recently with him. And I think it's because Miles as a character has really found his footing and he's found this confidence to be completely sincere and vulnerable in this moment because he trusts her enough to ask her that question. And she believes in him enough to have thrown him that bone. And it's uh, the complete opposite of when he enters her office the first time. Yeah, and she knows how that's going to give him points with Jean because Mm -hmm. otherwise it looks like he came in to do what Jean successfully did Mm -hmm. and Miles was not able to do it. Exactly. Even though Jean was the one who actually convinced her, she tells Jean that she wouldn't have been convinced without Miles. It's it's a really beautiful moment. It is. It's so simple. Yeah, very simple. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think the writers also were kind of finding Miles. and, And not only do we now see him, but when we get to the beginning of season two... Oh, there he is. Yep. yep. 100%. Mm-hmm. That's Miles. Yep. Well, and I also, like, like you mentioned, that line of why did you do that, Grant could have chosen to keep that up. Yeah. And his work as an actor, and I'm sure Barnett's work as a director, to trust that, to do that sincerely, really capped the season one relationship in a way that could have been overlooked very easily. It's We're in the first act of the episode. There's no need... To have that much sincerity. They absolutely could have gotten away with it, but they gave that moment its due and it really paid off. It's beautiful. Um, also, dartboard. Yes. So it says, How is my driving <laughs> call? And one of those signs. Yep. <laughs> which is funny because this aired after the Bickners, but mm-hmm. was filmed before. Mm-hmm. So there's no way they would have known, and it just fits so perfectly. It makes me very happy. Yeah. I like that for my mind, it's because of the Bickners. Yeah, I think so too. So Miles thanks Murphy, you know, he owes her. And then it dawns on her, oh, wait, well, I'm going to have a co-host. Who's going to be my co-host? And then Corky comes in, and she's so excited. She just heard the news. And hugs her in the most amazing way, because Candace doesn't move, and she looks so annoyed. And she's, like, hugging her, but she's so rigid. It's so awkward. I love it. And Corky's just melted into her, and she ends it on this high note that just sustains, that Mm -hmm. I'm sure is just the most ear-piercing, annoying thing for Murphy. And the audience goes crazy. I was so happy. I just wrote, applause. And then Miles sneaks out. Yeah, as I would. So we find ourselves at Phil's, and Murphy is just swooping in at the hero table to join Jim, who is mid-meal. And um, she she asks if he's heard the news. And he goes, oh, the morning show. They asked me to host it once. Laughs. As if I really wanted to get up at 3 a.m. to interview some flash-in-the-pan starlet. This is another speech where as he he starts off jovial and he slowly starts snarling. Just have sex, Jim. Just have sex, Jim. Some flash-in-the-pan starlet or health food nut for the sole purpose of entertaining late-to-work slackards or the chronically unemployed. And at this point, he's physically snarling and hooking them on a day-long spree of soap operas. And his face... It ends on his snarl he's making, and his whole face just starts twitching in this glare. And she goes, Jim, I thought, have you booked that hotel yet? No. Hurry. And and Phil swoops in, and he brings up the morning show, and Murphy wants to know, is there anything he hasn't heard? And he says, well, I was a day late on the Quail nomination. Ding. But that was more of a psychological denial situation than anything else. Ding, ding. Ding, 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 ding. And he takes off back to the bar. Corky arrives, and... In her quirky way, she is very excited. She is moving with those shoulder-forward energy. And she sits down, very excited to share that she has the segment list for the week. And she's thrilled because they get to interview Charles Pritchard, a very distinguished author. Um, He just won the Children's Book Award. And she uses that to to explain to Murphy, since Murphy has not heard of him. She is flummoxed that Murphy has not heard of Charles Pritchard. He wrote China Berry Chuckles in the Land of the Woogies. And she's so (laughs) just kind of defiant. How do you not know what this is? 
And Murphy rolls her eyes and we find and she shares the list with Murphy saying, um, you know, make sure you take a look at this. Um, there are some challenging things on it, which we find out include gifts you can make for Father's Day, how to get your dog to respect you, to which Murphy, as expected, rolls her eyes and says, this is not challenging. It's a snap. There's no studying necessary. And Cork says, well, I'm glad you know everything about spring fashions for thick-waisted women. Me, I have to do my homework. And I'm making it a short day. I'm going to bed early, so 3.30 a.m. isn't a shock to my system. Think about that, Murphy. You know how you retain water when you're tired. So this line actually reminded me a little bit of something that Candace Bergen said in an interview. Hmm. There was this interview she did with Jane Pauley that was on one of my tapes, so I used to watch it a lot. Mm -hmm. And um, she talks about, you know, that there's so much dialogue and she'd stay up late at night, you know, sometimes to stay up, she'd have to lie like on her kitchen counter or um, table or something, Mm -hmm. something like hard. Something uncomfortable. Yeah, Yeah. so that she would stay awake. bedroom-like. Yeah. And Jane Pauley was like, oh, but then if you're so tired, you're not going to look good, you know, for the set. And she goes, yeah, well, that's not the priority. Mm-hmm. And I loved that as a mm-hmm. kid, that she was like, I don't care how I mm-hmm. look. Like, it's important that I do a good job. Mm-hmm. But something that I think is, and again, when we talk about qualifying each other's values mm. in the show sometimes, and sometimes being, you know, if you're ultra feminine, you're considered as having the the wrong or shallow priorities. Something that we do find out about about Corky in this, in this episode that I really appreciate, as I wrote, again, Corky with the integrity. Corky isn't looking down her nose at the gig she's been given and she's giving it as much attention and care as she would serious news. And she understands what the viewers actually are looking for, yes, what does. they want. And part of that is, is that I don't want to tune into a more, an early morning show with people who look tired. That doesn't, that's, yeah. I, and I can imagine from, if you're going to look at what, what some may consider a shallow consideration, she's actually probably looking at it from a smart approach, which is, whether you like it or not, you're not in print, you're not on radio, you are on camera, and what you look like can affect the viewer. So the fact that you're going to show up looking puffy and tired as next to somebody who looks awake in bright colors, your job is there to wake people up. And so I want to give Corky some integrity points on this, because I don't think it's just that she wants to look good and just that she's slamming Murphy for looking puffy when she's tired. I think she's actually also thinking about the job in a way that Murphy is belittling it. Well, what really took me about this episode is you get a sense of Corky's work ethic. Exactly. And you see why she will be successful. Mm-hmm. Is like we've talked about before, she may not have all the answers yet. But she finds them. She finds them and she wants to and she knows how to work hard mm-hmm. and she's okay with falling flat on her face. Exactly. And what makes this a great finale is the fact that she and Murphy have switched places. Exactly. And she discounted her in the whole in the whole pilot, and now she kind of understands a little, a little bit better. I have to say there were there were multiple women my age or younger, and that I, after rewatching this episode with this eye, who have who have told me because they're younger than me and they barely saw anything about Murphy Brown and want to listen to the podcast and watch the first season so they can yeah. understand. And there are several of them that I've wondered how to get them hooked because they might find the style to be dated or they might not there might not be people who necessarily connect with the the mature lead figure and watching this episode and thinking about these arcs i now know that if for a couple of these people that i have in mind i'm going to make them watch devil with a blue dress on and this episode oh hey as a an intro to feminism nice and i'm like i think you will actually look at what they do here and the way they reverse it and look at yourself in the way you may talk about other women who are on the other side because i think that's a huge hook for the women of our current generations yeah i agree 
And I'm just, I'm so proud of the writers. I'm so proud of the performers and the direction for what happens in this episode and Corky for her integrity. And then on, on another side, this episode, ending the season with this episode, mm-hmm. when in just a few weeks, the first episode of the Revival series will air. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually really glad that we're recording this episode before we go to the filming. Agreed. This way we are, we're not, we're not recording this episode knowing what her future in morning shows might be. Yes, not that we would give any spoilers, but maybe subconsciously it would affect the way we see this episode. Yes, we are going in with our assumption of what may happen, but we don't know yet. We do not. (laughs) Watching this episode with that consideration is very interesting. And I keep imagining certain clips of what Murphy says or what Jim says about Murphy later on Mm -hmm. in some promo with clips of her, you know, having to do it now. No, it's a different kind of morning show. Exactly. Absolutely. But it's still early in the morning. It is the last thing that they ever thought she would do. Yeah. And now this is going to be her job. Yeah. And I'm very interested into that contrast Mm -hmm. from this episode and what it means. Corky takes off, leaving her pearls of wisdom. (laughs) I get it. And... So we find ourselves in the townhouse. It is very late that evening. And unlike Corky, who, because of her work ethic and integrity, has gotten all of her research done early and gone to bed early, we can all assume that Corky is fast asleep at this time. Oh, yeah. Murphy is downstairs on the couch in her purple burgundy palm tree pajamas. Love it. I love them. I want a shirt like that. And her hair is a mess. And she has her sleep mask on. It's up on her forehead. She's desperately trying to sleep and cannot. She's complaining about it to Eldon, who's in his overalls and a peach pattern shirt. She hates that she has to be in a makeup chair in five hours and can't sleep. Which makes me feel like any time that I have to get on like a red-eye flight the night before, I'm just like, ah. Eldon helpfully says, why don't you try reading a book? That always helps me. I said she tried reading China Berry Chuckles, but can't get through it. And Eldon very sweetly offers to read to her while she lies down on the couch. Which I will, as a, a secure adult woman, will say, That still works for me because my sweet, perfect partner, when I can't sleep, will read The Hobbit to me until I fall asleep. It is magic and it works. (laughs) Her reaction to that is, that's stupid. And he says, hey, it's a once in a lifetime offer. So finally, she settles down with her head on the the arm of the couch and he does a really sweet, you comfy? And I just wrote, I just can't wait to see Eldon with Avery. I know. It's some of my favorite stuff. He's just such a good, like, uncle dad feature. I just love him. I just see him as, like, you comfy? Because that's probably what his mom or his nana asked him. Just sweet. And so he starts reading the book, and he says, Chinaberry chuckles, gathered up all his belongings, and went in search of his dear old friends, the Fifis. Now, he knew that their leader, Kelbo, would help him on his fearful mission, and she proceeds to interrupt him and say, you know that I had it figured out by page three? Any fool can guess that Chinaberry Chuckles finds the magic key in the ogre's cave and the woogie's Christmas is saved. To which Eldon slams the book shut. I love that gesture that he makes it loud. Oh, it's so it's like yeah. a slap of frustration. He says, well, thanks a lot. If I was reading Anna Karenina, you'd probably tell me not to get too attached to her. Which, question. Yes. My brain has decided that because he's such a fan of Russian art, that Eldon has actually read Anna Karenina. Yes! I love that! Yes. He loves the Russian art, and I feel like Eldon actually, like, reads Tolstoy as he goes to sleep. He would want to feel the Russian feeling. Exactly. So he's making this comment, and, you know, Murphy makes a take, and I'm believing that the joke is actually that he does know the ending of the story, and he's making that that real... Oh, absolutely. spoil this for me. Oh, absolutely. And not that he's actually... He's not actually misunderstanding that that would be a terrible thing. Because I could see that joke being played both ways. That he assumes because it's called Anna Karenina that she would be fine. 
and he's making a joke. Mm-hmm. If there was somebody not as literary, but I'm going to believe that he has yeah. read it. And Eldon is a smart, literate he's, guy. He's a smart, artistic, literate man. Yeah. I think he reads a lot. And he loves, loves he the Russian art. I mean, he doesn't watch TV. Exactly. So he must read and yeah. paint. I think, I believe that Eldon is drawn to the tragedy of the Russian art. I think so. Mm-hmm. So now we're at the morning set. Murphy has on the most, now we don't really see her at first, but I, I just have to talk about the outfit that Murphy is wearing. Yes. Because yes, he's where I wrote do. it. Mm-hmm. All gray, the uh, sort of white shirt and a belt and a, a white flower. Mm-hmm. Very sort of sex in the city before mm-hmm. sex in the city, which is interesting. It's a very Carrie Bradshaw, which speaking of sex in the city fashion. Yeah. Patricia uh, Fields. Who did Sex in the City mm-hmm. is me doing the costumes for the revival. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a very, very Carrie Bradshaw flower. Yeah. And I love, I really love the way it looks on her. Mm-hmm. And then she has this hat on at the beginning because she's exhausted mm-hmm. in sunglasses, which just looks great. And she's like two-fisting tea. I will say, as next to Corky, it's very drab for a morning show. And I think that's on purpose. Yeah. But I love, mm-hmm. I just love this outfit. It's a great look, but that is very FYI. She doesn't know. Yep. So Corky's just going on about how, you know, she really loved getting up early. She got so much done. She did aerobics. She did her nails. Her makeup had a nice breakfast. She said she did her hair, which, no, you don't need to do your hair for the show because they need to do your hair. Cause I know, but I think that as a, maybe as a Miss America, she just knows oh, yeah, how she, she likes just to do it. always does her hair. Yeah. But it's like, Corky, be more efficient with your time. You don't need to do, Okay. Maybe she just had so Murphy much time. Murphy didn't. No. <laughs> Murphy wore a hat. I, I brushed my teeth. <laughs> That's good. Sometimes, you know, that tired, I might forget to brush my teeth. I make a point to brush it before you arrive every day. I appreciate that. I'm a nice person. Thank you. Corky decides to introduce herself to the weather guy, who she just loves. She this just loves him. Such a sweet, genuine moment from Corky, and he's horrible to her. I wrote, weatherman needs a hotel, too. Hmm. You're right. <laughs> so Corky just says that she's been watching him for years, and he has such a sunny disposition that just comes through the screen. And you think for a second he's going to take it, and then he goes, tell to someone who cares. He's upset that he lost his chance to be on the couch until a couple of tootsies from a primetime show. And then he gets uh, really upset because uh, he has too many cat birthdays. Yeah, they need some dogs. Need some variety. And then stage manager Don Lake appears. Don Lake arrives! Don Lake! I wrote, I love the the amount of first Bonnie Hunt people we have, but for me personally, recently, a lot of waiting for Guffman people. Yes. Makes me real happy. He is definitely part of the Christopher Guest yes. and the Bonnie Hunt gang. I grew up knowing him as that guy who cracked me up so much on Waiting for Guffman. And then, of course, later in Best in Show, he's a Christopher Guest group. Also a wonderful writer. He is so wonderful. I had to stop and my my partner who has not seen Murphy Brown yet because I'm waiting to make him binge it. Don Lake is so beloved by our audiences that my boyfriend immediately knew who it was. He was like, oh my God, it's that guy. Well, he's so distinct looking, you know? He started out in Second City. He was a member of the Toronto Touring Company. He's actually Canadian. Mm -hmm. And since we have mentioned sort of, you know, the Bonnie Hunt gang, Mm -hmm. he was in her first TV series, The Building. He was in Bonnie, uh, which was her 95 to 96 sitcom. And he wrote, because he's actually also been Bonnie's writing partner for Life with Bonnie, which our guest Marianne mm-hmm. was on, and he co-wrote the film Return to Me, which mm-hmm. we also talked about because Marianne is in it. It's actually Six Degrees of Don Lake. Pretty much. <laughs> I love him so much. I also love that we both said this before we started recording. We never wrote him as a stage manager. We just called him in full Don Lake the entire recap. Yeah. Don Lake appears. Don, Don Lake, Lake appears. is here. I wrote um, that I, speaking of the kind of the Christopher Guest gang, Yes. I really just want to see a two-man show of him and Bob Balaban as brothers. 
forever. I just, those two, no matter what they do, I would love to see them just uh, opposite each other for a three hour show. I'd be so happy. Please someone make that. Please someone. Casting? Casting, could we, casting, could we get that please? Thank you. Oh, Don Lake is the stage manager. Did we even mention oh, yeah. who he is? Sorry, Don Lake is in this. We're not just getting excited because we thought about Don Lake once. Yeah. <laughs> also, it cracks me up always on this show that so much of the network, which we, which later, later on in the series is definitely implied to be CBS. Mm-hmm. It's never mentioned. And, mm-hmm. and when um, Gary Marshall comes in, there's definitely like eyes, like maybe somewhere. I, uh-huh. I feel like there's, but no one actually mentions the network. The morning show is in D.C., Eventually, Stan Lansing, who runs the network, lives in D.C. Yeah, that was always so weird. And I just kind of love it that, well, of course it is because then they have to be there. But it's not really realistic. But it always just makes me laugh. Yeah, I kind of love it. I'm fine with it. But it makes me laugh. So Murphy is pretty much asleep in her chair. And the weather guy yells at her. These people are my people. So don't cross me. Really needs a hotel. Yeah. So they do their intros. Uh, Corky mostly doing the heavy lifting. Yeah. You know, hope it's a girl season. Yep. You know, she hears that Bob is peeling now. Which which is good. It'll, it his Wasn't his trials will help other people? Yeah. Yeah. Um, hopefully his trials will help other people. He's going to come on the show and talk about yes. what happened. Yeah. I, I wrote that I, to make their entire opening before the chair turn, just my ringtone. It's so funny. And then she she goes to Murphy. And then, yeah, when they both turn to the weather guy, they both turn with their... And they have their beautiful long legs, mm-hmm. of course. But just the way that they both turn at the same time is hilarious. <laughs> and Murphy's still kind of slouched. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, they change to the couch, as hence to happen in, mm-hmm. in morning shows. And the first guest is the book writer we've heard about. The weather guy, because now he's in his weather persona. Oh, that's right. He's super nice now. I wrote, he Because he compliments them and how excited he is that they're there. And I wrote just, he is a monster. I also <laughs> realized, I think he calls her off camera. He calls Corky babe. Yeah, it's he's real, I mean, he's real gross. Tootsies, but babe. Yeah, he's gross. Yeah. I wrote that Murphy thinks that the book is about gender politics in the workplace. She literally says... Well, I, for one, couldn't help noticing that the male-dominated woogie kingdom seems to mirror our own adult struggle for sexual equality in the workplace. And Pritchard is kind of taken aback by that. He doesn't think that the woogies have a particular sex. Tell me, aren't the Fifis actually an oppressed minority of sorts? All in her anchor voice, by the way. All in her anchor voice. She is doing her, like, I'm going to grill and get this guy. Um, Can we talk about Jim Jansen as as awful Pritchard? Uh, What if, like... That face, another guy that you're like, you're in everything. So I probably know him best as Reverend Skinner from Gilmore Girls. I think we all do, yeah. Because he's just so wonderful. Um, But he's also in two episodes of uh, Star Trek DS9, which, I'm sorry, that's Deep Space Nine, for those of you not in my Star Trek convention days. Thank you. He is just a genius. He's been in everything. Oh, I also remember him probably first, I want to say, as um, Dr. Heitz Werber in X-Files. He made three appearances as a... He was in the pilot of the X-Files, which is why he probably stuck with me. And then I also knew him from um, a guest appearance on Third Rock from the Sun. He was also on an episode of Love and War. Mm-hmm. He was on um, Bette Midler's infamous sitcom, Bette. Yes. Um, and he also appeared as HUD secretary Bill Fisher in an episode of The West Wing, Stirred. Yes. And he returns to Murphy Brown as he a d- different character. He does. I'm glad he does. I love his work so much. And he is really... For being so physically notable mm-hmm. he's quite the chameleon yes i really thought that murphy brown had been really great with the casting continuity and it mm-hmm. is it's pretty damn good yep but so far i've noticed two people who do come back yeah um one of them you could say could be the same character 
He comes back as Mr. Cameron in Brown vs. Board of Education, and yeah. I'm pretty sure that he works at a school. Mm-hmm. So it's children-oriented. Yeah, no, no, it's a good name. Didn't I interview you once? Yeah. This is my favorite part of this scene, actually. He, he asks Murphy if, uh, he goes, do you have little ones, Ms. Brown? I think I can intelligently discuss your book without the benefit of having experienced childbirth. <laughs> Which, agreed. However, she says it with such ego. If there's so much ego, I'm dying because she's just so misplaced. And the point I think that is helpful with having children or being around younger people is that you understand the demographic. Yeah. And I think while we, there are certain things I don't think we should do with kids, kid gloves for kids. It's also remembering who the audience is, which Murphy is not Mm-mm. in both her interviewing style and the audience of the book she is discussing. She's bad at this. She's so bad at and this. And Corky is really good. I wrote, Corky is owning this broadcast. She mm-hmm. like leans forward, she sits forward, so she's basically blocking Murphy with her body. <laughs> yeah. In this like bright kind of coral pink suit with like a turtleneck underneath. Like she is both light wise and f- actual expertise wise just completely mm-hmm. owning this thing she's a beacon and she's so good at i di- i couldn't get exactly what she said down the way that she then sort of fuses it you know some would say that it's about this and you could say mm-hmm. that it's about gender politics so to speak but really like she ends it she talks about the sequel yep. she gets it in and then she just turns her she body salvages it murphy yeah. And then Murphy adds commentary, which is, she goes, next, a real news guy, Brad Heflin, has an interview with the new Secretary of Health and Human Services. And Corky just swoops in with, it's real short. <laughs> it's just, also the way that Murphy so kind of rudely goes, a real news guy. Like, yeah. It's, she's so dismissive of the audience she's speaking to, the the form of broadcasting that she's in, and her own guest. Yeah. Like, Murphy. Murphy. And cut two. So we are um, after these events, at least a day, if not a few days. Oh, it's a few days because we're toward the end of the week. Yeah. Uh, I think we're on like, what, the Thursday? Probably, now? yeah. That was our first day on Monday. Now we're on Thursday because the next day is the last one. Well, wait a second, though. I, the first day must have been Tuesday because no one's in the office on Sunday. That was the confusing thing to me. They start the next day after they're asked, right? So wouldn't it be Tuesday that they started? But I thought they did five days, like a one week. I know, but... Why would everyone? That's I yeah. know. Now you've broken me. All right. Well, we're basically we're at the end of their time. Yeah. Maybe it's a Monday. We we don't know. And they they come charging in. And what I love is again this reversal of roles, where Corky is admonishing Murphy, and Pretty she much. says, "You're going to have to lighten up. That's all there is to it." She says, "We're not doing Meet the Press. You're dragging me down out there. Why did you insist to that poor actor that he's being typecast? Who cares?" And Murphy says, "Well, he's always playing the same innocent kid." And Corky's like, "He's ten. I kind of love that joke. It's great. And yeah. I also just wrote, Corky's in this like cobalt blue uh, suit, skirt suit combo. It's got that crop jacket, but it's a very artistic crop jacket with the like black acrylic earrings. And I said that whole outfit is very much back in now because it's not just a bright skirt suit of the 80s. It's very fashion forward and architectural. And I'm seeing that now. Well, something that um, Diane talked about in the commentary for 77 that I didn't bring up is that they purposely, which I'm sure we both have noticed, Mm -hmm. is uh, put Corky in outfits that contrast Murphy. And Mm -hmm. and these kind of little jackets really do. It does. And it just, I'm seeing, I see this outfit on racks again. Like the big, like plastic kind of acrylic, highly saturated earrings are 100% back. That bright blue and the more architectural suit, that's 
those are all coming back in a oh, fun way. The 90s are here. I know this is really, you know, 89. But, but she's fashion forward, so she is the next. Exactly. There you yeah. go. Thank you. Yes. But looking at Forever 21 is like walking <gasps> yeah. into an episode of Friends now. It's crazy. So then the, the not Elvis walks in singing to himself about blue, blue and blue suede shoes. Oh, hello, ma'am. He sees Corky. And he just wanted to say that he's been really enjoying her work on the morning show very much. And she says, oh, isn't that sweet? And you are? Because, of course, Corky, gracious to the end mm-hmm. and so sincere. And he proceeds to say what sounds like Elbert Pressler. <laughs> like, he's so much closer to Elvis Presley now. This is why I can't remember his name. Elbert because... Pressler? It's different than before. And I, what I was saying was this name changing had me giggling on a second separate level, which is it's reminding me of Jerry from Parks and Recreation, where they just keep changing his name. So I spent the entire time just calling him not Elvis because I don't know what names are saying. Mm -hmm. And he walks away. And at that point, and I think it's because now he's at the closest he's been to saying Elvis Presley. Mm -hmm. Everyone pauses and even Corky looks at the group. And so we have Miles and Jim. They're behind the coffee island and Murphy's sitting there. And everyone kind of looks up and looks at each other like, could it be? Nah. And they all shake their heads I, and move on. I hadn't noticed that moment mm-hmm. until I rewatched it a third time. It's and I like, love it. I appreciate it. They, they give them the moment of yeah. possibly being smarter. <laughs> Gene returns. Gene is back. He walks off the elevator. Kinsella's in the house. And he goes to Cork, straight to Corky and tells her she's doing an excellent job. Everyone upstairs is highly impressed. And the audience response is great. She says, well, thank you so much, Mr. Kinsella. And he says, call me Gene, which is a big deal for Corky. Mm-hmm. And he then turns and says, hi, Brownie, been watching you on the show. Lighten up. And just takes off. <laughs> I love Gene. I love He's Gene. He's so business. Yep. I love him. I love that he loves her, but he's a, he's a businessman. Yeah. He's going to get it done. I love he calls her Brownie. It's awesome. Murphy looks around and she's like, I'm not that bad, am I? And Jim starts walking past her and she goes, Jim. And he turns around and he goes, frankly, Murphy, I've rarely seen anyone so ill-suited for a situation as you are for the morning show. You're acerbic, humorless, inflexible, and unprepared. In a nutshell, you make Sam Donaldson look like Pinky Lee, which is damning. The way he says Pinky Lee, Pinky Lee, just like pushes on it. Also, I was laughing because you're acerbic, humorless, inflexible is all kind of stuff. That I'm like, okay, I could see Jim in- enjoying that stuff about her, but the unprepared mm-hmm. is very damning. Oh, I think so too. I was like, ooh, that's the like, ow, Jim. And she goes, I thought you went to a hotel with Doris last night. He goes, I did. It was great. Thanks for the advice, Murphy. But you still suck. And turns around and walks out, and the whole place erupts into applause. <laughs> it's great. So he's like, it was great. As everyone cheers and she looks downtrodden, Miles comes around the island and he's apologizing. He just didn't know she could be bad at anything. <laughs> and he says, that, I guess the morning show is harder than you thought. And she says, you're right, that it takes a certain kind of person to ease people into their day. And Corky knows how to do that. I hate that. I love that she goes, it's not that I'm bad, I'm just not good. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I love that she is now acknowledging that yeah. there is a, there's a skill set to this, and Corky has it, and she doesn't. Mm-hmm. And she hates that it's something she doesn't have. Yeah. Miles says, like, aw, Murphy, and takes her forward. And what I love is, for me, this the way he talks to her, it's like it's a, a teaching moment akin to Chinaberry Chuckles. It's like, a maybe you'll just have to accept that there are some things you'll never master. Like, we were, we're putting the bow on this learning lesson for yeah. the children. And then she goes, you don't think I, I can do it. I can do it great. Corky gave me the gardening segment. I'm going to tell you everything you've ever wanted to know about bulbs. People will be talking about mulch on their way to work tomorrow. And she's heading her way into her office. The words tuberous begonias will be on everyone's lips. Elwood, get me Georgetown Nursery. And runs in. And not Elvis. Nods at her and turns back to the phone he's been on and says, no, I said the jumbo bucket of chicken. <laughs> 
I I also love that that Murphy goes, you think I can't do morning? I can do it. I can, I can do, do it great. I can do it great. And I love it. She's like, oh, I know my segment. This is the key. She knows her segment and she's going to prep like she's prepping mm-hmm. for FYI. She's going to get everything yeah. that matters. And I, again, his name is now Elwood. Fine. I appreciate the reference to Blues Brothers. <laughs> Well, I <laughs> no I, one knows what this man's name is. I also really think it's important that that Miles says that it's something she can't master. And I wrote those are fighting words for Murphy. Exactly. You it probably would have been fine had you not said she can't do it. Yeah. No. 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 We were back to the morning show set, and unfortunately, the gardener, Mr. Kurtz, was in an, an accident. He's fine, but he just not going to make it from Virginia. And Murphy begins to have the biggest freak out because it's going to be a cooking segment. And mm-hmm. I am so with you, Murphy. My favorite thing is um, she's talking with Don Lake about it. And mm-hmm. he's like, oh, it's no big deal. And she's like, but there's going to be another gardener, right? Right? No, no, it's, it's, a, it's a cooking segment. As they bring the table past her. And I love the way she just looks at it with this dread and fear. Uh, ultimate fear. It's fantastic. I also wrote that, wow, I can hear Don Lake's Canadian accent for the first time in my life. Oh, really? Just in those lines. Because most of the time I see him playing a character that might be from the Midwest or something like that. Like it's, But he plays all these characters. This is the first time where I hear, I, I'm hearing his natural Canadian accent. Oh, nice. And I was like, oh, oh, you know, we're just going to do a cooking segment. <laughs> So Corky enters. She brought donuts again for the crew. They love her. Murphy is freaking out with her. Also, great pink blazer, silver cuff Mm -hmm. on her wrist, like the gold one. And she goes, Mr. Kurtz jackknifed. She's been replaced by a lady who bakes things. And she gestures towards the baking area. Mm -hmm. It's so fantastic. She's terrified. She's absolutely terrified. And what is so amazing is that Corky is not rattled. Nope. Corky can really handle the pressure, and I think this comes from her Miss America days, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, she's just give. If you have to go through that rigor of having to answer questions that you might have had to know, but you don't know which question is going to be asked in front of an audience, she's ready for anything. So they come over to the, the table. Well, first of all, Murphy needs Corky to understand that the last time she baked brownies, she had to call in an industrial cleaner. The last time she made brownies was with the Bickners. Oh, I assumed that she bought brownies. You think that she had a... She a, said, I'm going to make brownies. Oh, no. That's great. With the Bickners. I just assume... I always think that Murphy doesn't cook, so I she assume that... she's making brownies. Oh, my God. That's genius. Yeah. Bickners. 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 It's not a good day for that's Murphy. That's probably why they were probably in the kitchen and she was dealing with the Bickners. Mmm. And everything caught on oh. fire. So they're looking over the table. Corky can tell just from looking at the ingredients, they're going to make a dessert souffle. By the utensils. It's not the ingredients. She's looking by the utensils. Oh, see? Again, I don't cook. So, okay, I'm just going to, again... Can you take over the segment for me? I'm just going to say, was raised a tomboy. Uh-huh. I am was the last person who thought that I... I was the last person who wanted to be considered a girly girl. Mm-hmm. I can tell by the utensils what they're making. This is not a, oh, Murphy is a non-prissy female... And therefore, she's not prepared for a baking segment. Oh, I don't see it that way either. But I think that that is kind of the cliche that's being put in front gotcha. of us. Gotcha, okay. And I just want to do another eye roll that cooking is for everybody. And it's not just girly girls who know what utensils do. Diane English's Instagram, she can cook. Exactly. And also, like... I'm impressed. I'm just, I'm just, I'm impressed at Corky's skill. I'm annoyed by the joke, but not by the writer of the okay. joke. It's just a like... I gotcha. I know it's a trope that Murphy is a career woman, so she doesn't know how to bake. I'm sorry. I'm a, I'm a career woman, and I, I know how to cook. 
That's interesting. I think because I don't do any of this, I kind of saw it from my point of view, obviously. Mm -hmm. But also the idea that she's just crap at everything in her real life. But Mm -hmm. you're right. That's probably the trope that they're trying to do. That's the trope. But I do think that we can explain it away with more nuance because we love the characters and we know the show. But I do think that if you're a Karuan by yourself... Now, granted, I wish they had... Instead of saying cooking, I wish they had said baking. Because baking is its own special thing that you don't have to figure out how to do for yourself. You know, like, as somebody who has been, you know, on my own as a as an adult woman, I'd have to know how to cook for myself or I don't eat. I don't always have the money to order. I think they do say bake a lot. But there are stuff where they say cooking. And for they me, okay. like, the thing is, baking is a completely different thing. Yes, that is, it is rocket science. And it that is. is actually intimidating. You are actually, that you are correct. <laughs> and, and that's why I do also love that she goes replaced by a lady who bakes things. But what I love when, you know, Corky says that she just knows, and again, I, I was very impressed by that. Yeah, go Corky. Um, is that... So, you know, Corky is saying that it's a dessert souffle. Why don't we build a Titan missile, for God's sakes? And this is what I love, too, about Corky. We'll get through this. Mm -hmm. Just tell yourself, I can do this. Yes, go Corky. Corky is so great under pressure. The way Murphy's reacting is the way I react when my friend tells me that experimental baking is super fun. I'm like, no, it's chemistry. That's not fun. I have to make sure I get the thing that reacts correctly. I should just make a missile. So we're on to the segment, and uh, Murphy introduces Ida Mae Johnson of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, the winner of the National Bake Off. Go, Ida. Uh, now, this is not her the recipe that she won with because it was on short notice. And I'm sorry, I'm just saying the line. You're such a child. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Uh, we're all children because yes. we all laugh at this These joke. writers are children. <laughs> yes. Uh, is uh, the reason that she can't. The reason that she can't do the previous winning recipe on short notice is that her nuts have to be rum-soaked for a week. Don't they all? And everybody laughs because... Don't all our nuts need to be rum-soaked for a week? I don't know about you, but I love a good rum-soaked nut. Mm, I love a soaked nut. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly the writing is effective. Yes. Um, I wrote and, that Murphy shows such restraint at that line. You just see her kind of purse her lips to not react. But the audience loves this joke. Loves it. So everything that Corky does, Murphy just narrates. Mm-hmm. Just to look like They're she's doing blending. something. Um. Yes. What is that utensil that Corky's using? Oh. It's a spoon. <laughs> now, before we talk about the separating of the eggs, because that's a really big thing, I do you want to talk? Should we talk about the actress who plays Ida Mae oh, Johnson? Let's talk about Ida Mae Johnson with an equally great name of Marge Redmond. Ooh, fantastic! Right? Oh, it's such a it's so of the time. So Marge is an Ohio-born actor. She is still around. She is ninety-three years old. Go, Marge. Go, Marge. Marjorie Marge Redman, born in December. Uh, she's an actress and a singer. Uh, she has been working for so long. Um, again, as we always say, please go check out her IMDb. As somebody who's, she's also prolific in the theater, but just on her IMDb, she has credits spanning from 1957 all the way until 2008, where she did a voice in Grand Theft Auto 4. This woman is amazing. <laughs> My favorite little bit about her is that she has a special Angela Lansbury connection, and we know how I feel about that. So she understudied Angela Lansbury in the original Broadway production of Sweeney Todd. She also understudied Judy Holliday in Bells Are Ringing. I love Judy Holliday, and I love Bells Are Ringing. It is so good. And like this says so much about her, her quality as a performer to understudy those two big roles mm-hmm. on Broadway. That's yeah. insane. Coincidentally, she also parodied Jessica Fletcher from Murder, She Wrote in a 1988 episode of Hunter that was entitled Murder, He Wrote. 
And I really wonder if she got that part because she worked so closely to Angela Lansbury, she could do Jessica Fletcher. Oh, I bet. I assume she did. Yeah. Also, um, you made a great comment about who she thought you thought she was. Uh, I never looked up who she was watching this episode because mm-hmm. it had not been in the past one of my favorites. So I thought she was a Van Patten. She looks like a Van Patten. She absolutely looks but like a Van Patten. But she's not a Van Patten. So back to the episode. So eventually, they got to do this, this fast because it will ruin the souffle. Well, because they're they're trying to boil the the milk. And for anybody who cooks, if they're stirring consistently so that they're keeping the, the flour and everything mixed into the milk. They're trying to boil the milk. That is a very time-sensitive thing because you could curdle it and ruin everything. Gotcha. That's why it's so time-sensitive because she has milk on heat and she's stirring it, waiting for these things to be added in. We make a souffle every Christmas. Yeah, I'm looking. I'm looking at Jesse like she's I'm an teaching me a foreign language. <laughs> we make a, a, a specific souffle every year for my Christmas oh, cool. with my family. I love it. It's ridiculous. It's from a really funny story, but it's there are very time-sensitive things mm-hmm. that have to. And also, you need. This is why the egg whites are so important in this because the egg whites have to be separated because they have to be to a certain firmness so that the souffle doesn't fall. I feel so inadequate right now. <laughs> I'm just saying these are, she's right. Ida, Ida May is stressed for a reason. <laughs> Listen, my mother's mad at me that I, I never really learned because she wanted to teach me and I just, I don't know, didn't have time. I'm just going to say my mother, who I have talked about many times and is my hero, is a, a smart, intellectual career woman born in the 40s who is in college in the 60s and has been a, and just you know retired after 47 years and was like breadwinner for my family this woman knew how to make a souffle you do not have to be a a girly girl which is fine if you want to be but to cook and to know these tools i agree and i would like diane to teach me how to make a tomato tart yeah yeah that looked really good you did yeah so the thing with the eggs <laughs> the thing with the eggs is i think about this most often when I make eggs, because it's the one thing I can make. Mm-hmm. And is eggs? Yes. You yourself? You you make those eggs? I do. It's it's my own recipe. You cook the eggs? I do. <laughs> I cook the eggs. I raise them myself. I often think of this when I make eggs because it's so impressive to me, and I I remember trying not as like a small child, but definitely in my life, based on this episode, seeing if I could do it, and I cannot. Okay, so clearly Faith Ford is an an incredibly impressive woman. Yes. She just is. Like, w- everything we've talked about her with the origin of Corky and just Faith in general. Also the fact that she does one-handed egg separating. Egg separating in that way is not just a skill that everyone learns over time. It has to do with the dexterity of your fingers, with your grip, the size of the egg, the size of your fingers. It is something that not everyone can do. That is an incredibly tricky thing, let alone to just crack an egg with one hand and not have it crush everywhere like Murphy's about to do a million times. The fact that she's like, oh, there's this great trick I know, the separate it, that is just impressive on its own. Yeah. <laughs> like, that is so unfair. And of course, it's the thing that Murphy gets obsessed with is the potentially impossible task. And to get no shell in. I Okay, so one thing okay. I have to say. Yes. I'm pretty sure a bit of the yolk goes in at the end of Faith's, of Corky's. Okay. I'm pretty sure right at the end, I see some yolk go in. Listen, she's doing pretty good. I, she's doing great. I understand that in in the world of this episode that um, that Corky only gets egg whites in there, I'm pretty sure a little bit of yolk goes into Faith Ford's eggs. I'm still impressed. I'm very impressed. I know you are too. But I'm just saying. Okay. I, I just want to absolve Murphy a little bit because I think Corky gets some yolk in there. Well, Murphy's issue is that she needs, she thinks it's so cool. She's she has like a, to learn it. She's such, 
This is such a child's reaction. It is. That's great. That's so cool. Let me try. Let me try it. And so she becomes obsessed, really, with trying to get this egg right. And I think at first it's about how cool it is. I mm-hmm. think at the end, you know, eventually when she stays after, it's about getting it right. Well, it's that she can't do it. She can't do something that Corky can do. Yep. Yeah, which is what the whole episode is about. And it gets to the point because Corky is trying to save her. Oh, let me do that. Oh, let me do that. And so it's... Well, Corky sees the chaos that's about to happen. Like, Corky yeah. sees the disaster ahead of her. <laughs> And again, Quirky is doing like rocket science here. She has a guest right here who's getting irritated. She, as Quirky, who knows how this dish is supposed to be made, knows the time crunch and how actually real it is. But she's trying to also keep tensions down. She's trying to keep Murphy in check. Quirky looks like the world's most patient, like, Brady Bunch mother. Like, she is yes. just trying to, like, salvage this broadcast. And she's so good at her job that it almost happens. And, and so it looks like they're fighting to, to Ida May, but mm-hmm. they're not. Murphy is not behaving no. and not helping. She's making it worse. She's throwing a tantrum. And it gets to the point where Ida May, you know, is, this won't work and you're ruining my souffle. Why don't you take a butcher knife and cut out my heart? <laughs> and then, um, that's like a terrible uh, accent. Oh, but great. And then one of my favorite Murphy moments probably ever is that she takes the whisk. It's called a whisk, right? Yes, that is a whisk. Yes. Nailed it. And brings it over to Ida May as if she's got a knife and she's going to threaten her. Mm-hmm. Just sort of like holding it within her fist. She goes, lady, what do you want from me? It's 8 o'clock in the morning. I haven't had a cigarette in 205 days. It's a morning show. Lighten up. The yes. L- I like the bringing back of the lighten up. I, it's such a good button. Mm-hmm. Because Murphy, in a way, has finally learned her lesson. She has, <laughs> yes. So we, we cut to post-broadcast. The lights are dark. It's just Murphy at the at the rolling cooking island, and she's continuing to practice one-handed egg separation. And I just wrote, this is insane. My dad grew up in a diner where he's the reason that I grew up making hollandaise from scratch because he loved making breakfast from scratch. And he, and I can't do that. I'm pretty sure he could crack them one-handed. I'm 99% positive he couldn't separate them one-handed. That... I was like, of course, Murphy is focused on doing the hardest thing possible because Corky can do it. Yeah. And she must master it before she leaves. It's become a representation yep. of the fact that Corky she can do something. Yeah. Let's just acknowledge the fact that Murphy, as as demonstrated from the pilot episode, has an addictive personality and tends to hyper focus. There you go. <laughs> ding, ding. So Don Lake, stage manager, enters very nicely saying listen it's been fun but they need to shut down the studio now because <laughs> of course murphy keeping all these people stuck at work and i wrote i'm not used to seeing don lake with so much power yeah i'm not used to seeing him actually kind of having some control of a situation <laughs> i think we like power lake i like power lake a lot so corky appears and she says she says she's sorry that she had to get rough with murphy on set <laughs> and and Murphy says, well, no, she, I should probably thank you for taking that meat mallet away from Mrs. Johnson. But also, why does Mrs. Johnson have a meat mallet at a souffle segment? I don't understand. It's just funny, Jesse. It's just funny. I just, my logic police needs to know why. Um, sidebar, Corky's wearing this, the great teal jacket. But I just love the line on it. It does this kind of wide triangle shape with, um, it's not, it's almost a, a like, a wider seam that it has that creates this kind of pseudo wider shoulder 
architecture. It's very simple, but I just wanted to note that I love it. In case anyone feels like making me this jacket. <laughs> Corky and Murphy come around from the from the island and Murphy says, you, you surprised me this week. You were good. It's so, it's very sincere and you see it touch Corky and she says, thank you. That means a lot to me. I wrote, she's so gracious and sincere. And then in the same sincerity says, I wish I could say the same about you. Corky's honest. She's very honest and she really wishes she could say the same. Murphy says it's fine. She's accepted her shortcomings, sort of. And Corky says this beautiful little speech that I wrote down, which is, you know, this week you're probably feeling a lot like I do most of the time. Somebody throws you into a situation you're not prepared for and you fall on your face a lot. But I believe a person can learn if they study hard and really apply themselves. At least I hope they can. I really would love to be like you, Murphy. And I'm going to be honest, when I watched this episode, this made me cry. This is why it's the finale. This is why it's the finale. I wrote, it's a love letter to women. It is such, this is exactly what we need more of. It's going to make me cry when yeah, you you're said welcome. that. You're welcome. It's a, it is, this is just what we need in all of our workplaces and in all of our industries. Like, this is, the fact that Corky has this self-awareness and this awareness of, of the lesson, of the parallel here, and there's zero resentment or or malice behind her pointing it out she's not saying oh now you see how i feel she's saying you know i've just it's coming from a place of empathy of being like i just realized that you were in the position i'm normally in and she just did her best to have her hand out to guide murphy along this unfamiliar path and it wasn't about finally proving herself she didn't have to she just did her job and that's how she proved herself without even making that her priority Mm. i just it's why Corky has become really second to Jim for me as far as favorite characters. I She just blew me away. Faith Ford has blown me away in retrospect in ways that I, I'm not sure I gave her credit for before. Same. And um, this episode was part of her Emmy submission. Mm-hmm. And that makes 100% yeah. sense. And Murphy says, gee, that's about the nicest compliment anyone's ever given me. Which is super sincere. Super sincere. Corky does her sweet little, come here, Murphy, and goes in for a hug. And the last moments we see is, from Murphy's perspective, over Corky's shoulder, we see this prankish glee come on her face as she raises the last egg from behind Mm -hmm, her mm -hmm. back and holds it in line for Corky's head. And then you see her kind of grimace and go, and bring it back down behind her back. And they separate, and Corky goes, I knew you wouldn't do it. And the episode ends on a really, really great picture of the two of them during the author segment, which will be the picture that we use on the website because I love it too much. I love it too. (laughs) And that, I just think, I'm I'm with you. We're on the same page. I completely understand why this is the finale now. Yeah, it it really works. And and I wouldn't have seen it if we hadn't done the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think think before I would have assumed that the finale was based on, if it was based on a relationship, it would be with Murphy and Frank or... Murphy and Jim or something like that. Yeah. I never once considered that the, the arcs that really mattered this season were Miles and Corky. Because that's what the pilot sets up? Yep. Yeah. So this is our last episode of season one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do have two more interview episodes that will take us through the end of August. Yes. And then we're going to take a little hiatus and come back in September. Yeah, like shows take hiatuses to like regroup. We're going to come back for season two. Exactly. And in the interim, we have set up a Patreon. Yes. So while you are sitting there missing us intently, hear our, our beautiful voices through your ear holes or look at more information, um, you will be able to find us at patreon.com slash 
you guessed it, Murphy Brown Pod. If you're unfamiliar with Patreon, there'll be different levels with different prices that you will be donating once a month, and each level gets you different kinds of prizes. Everyone who is a member of the Patreon will receive special content. If you're unaware, we actually record longer than these episodes are. Yes. We edit them down because we want most people to be able to listen to it in one commute. Yes, and sometimes, you know, we have, we, we go on very unique tangents. Or sometimes we just have a few more bloopers than you even hear at the end of the episodes. <laughs> so if, if you want more of the podcast by being a part of the Patreon, there will be levels that will get you that extra content, little sections that we cut from the episodes that you can listen to, yes. as well as some really cool little gifts that you'll be able to see when you, you go on and yeah. catch that out. Fun things we can't tell you about yet, but we will tell you about later. Yeah, so stay tuned to our social media. So, Lauren, what if somebody doesn't want to donate on a recurring basis? Is there a one-time option? Absolutely. The same week we'll be launching this episode and the Patreon, there'll be a button on our website where you can donate a one-time only donation to the podcast. Mm -hmm. And we are, we are not snobs here. Whatever you find in your heart to donate, we appreciate. It can go toward just the cold brew that gets us through those early mornings sometimes. <laughs> It could be a new mic. Whatever it is, we, we appreciate your support. And speaking of that, thank you so much for all of your support on, on iTunes with the rates and reviews and your feedback so far. It's been really, really wonderful for us, and we love connecting with you. Yeah, thank you so much. It really has meant a lot to the both of us. You know the drill on the website, the email, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, Murphy Brown Pod. As we gear up for the revival. We will have many thoughts and feelings. Yes, we will. So next episode, join us for a two-part interview where we celebrate the end of season one, the 1988-1989 season, with series one and series one through four director, Barnett Kelman. Yay! I'm so excited for you guys to listen to this. We've just been sitting on it, waiting to share it with you. And we'll see you next week for another edition of FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. That, that you nailed it. Pelvis thrust. Mm. I wish people could see it. I wish people could see my excellent pelvic work. Speaking of Doris. <laughs> that's the end bumper. That's the total end bumper. Bye, season one. Goodbye, season one. With class, we exult. <laughs> uh.